uh, hey, welcome. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm so glad that you guys uh, chose Calvary Soda to come and be a part of our time to uh, worship, to spend some time uh, reflecting upon who God is, um, to have our hearts and our minds trained to become disciples, and then ultimately uh, there's going to come a point when this whole, this whole shindig's going to end, and we're going to send you out of here to go live uh, the, the Jesus life. Uh, we call it being a disciple or living on mission. Um, taking the name of Jesus everywhere we go. So uh, thanks for being a part of this time together here. Um, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're just going to jump in. If you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you guys raise your hand, and uh, we will have some ushers that will get you guys Bibles. Um, and then you can open up, if you'd like, to the book of Daniel, somewhere, somewhere in the middle of your Bible. You can look in the table of contents. That's totally cool. Um, find the book of Daniel. Chapter 7 is what we'll be looking at. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll just jump right in. So... God, we just give you thanks for our time here, and I ask you, God, right now that you would just speak your word to our hearts. That's what we need more than anything. God, we just confess that we, we feast throughout the whole week on just trivial information, and God, we find our souls just um, starving, longing for something more, something deeper, and God, so the time that we have here this, this morning right now, would you just... Open up for us a feast of yourself that we can partake, be transformed, be reshaped, be remade, and truly live. God, that's what you invite us into, is to truly, truly live. So we ask you right now that you would just help us to hear from you this morning, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said. Amen. So we've been in a series throughout this whole summer in the book of Daniel, just looking at chapter by chapter. We have come to Daniel chapter 7, which is kind of the middle section of the book. It kind of pivots on chapter 7. We said that verse, uh, chapters 1 through 6 is kind of like the first half of the book. Chapter 7 to the end is like the second, latter half of the book. Um, but everything kind of pivots here on this important chapter. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, I think I probably even dropped this last week, but um, chapter 7 um, it might sound a little a little bit of an overstatement, but it's, trust me, it's not. It's probably the most important chapter in the entire Bible. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, if I were to ask you, um, how would you typically refer to Jesus? Um, I think most of us would refer to Jesus something along the lines of Jesus is the Christ. He's, he's the king. Um, the word Christ is just kind of Bible language that comes to mean anointed one. It's the word that basically the, the Hebrew is Mashiach. The Greek translation of that is Christos. So it's kind of the Hebrew and a Greek word that basically means the same thing. It means, um, so what they would do is they would take a king and they would pour oil all over them. And that process, that act of pouring oil over them is called anointing. So it's the, the, the oiled one. <laughs> the anointed one is kind of the idea. That's what the word Christos means. So we would typically think of Jesus as, as the Christos, the anointed one, which he truly is. Um, and yet, do you know that the number one way by which Jesus actually refers to himself is not the Christos, the Christ, the anointed one, which is kind of shocking for many of us because that's how we exclusively think of Jesus. Uh, the number one way by which Jesus exclusively refers to himself is by this phrase called the Son of Man. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, so be prepared this morning, hopefully, maybe, by, by God's grace, to have your mind absolutely blown by this chapter. It's like, I'm... I've been in this chapter for, for months now, just kind of studying and preparing and reading it and rereading it. 
and I'm still having my mind like blown by it. So I realize for some of you this might be like the introduction to this. So be introduced to being mind blown, and uh, hopefully it'll be a, a good mind blown, uh, not just simply like information. That's the, that's not our end game here. It's not just to learn information. It's not just Bible trivia. It's actually to be transformed. Like we want glimpses of who God is and what God is up to in this world, so that we can be ultimately changed and transformed. That's a big idea. So what I want to do this morning right now as we jump into this, I want to basically give just a, a quick little recap of kind of what we looked at up until this particular point. So um, last week we looked at kind of the, the first segment of chapter 7, which is what we just described as the beastliness of humanity. We saw that Daniel has this image, this vision, and in the vision he sees four beasts. We'll talk about that in two seconds here. Um, but these four beasts uh, become identified as basically world-governing empires, and world-governing empires, of course, are, are run by human beings, right? Um, human beings that make choices, rather than to partner with God, to do what God asks them to do, they make choices that basically say, I want to get in line with my authentic self, the way we would describe it today. And by tapping into one's authentic self, always drive someone away from the heart of, of God. Because what we're doing is we're framing our lives based around our deepest desires as opposed to framing our lives around what does God want? It's, that's, that's the original problem in the Garden of Eden, chapter 3. So what ends up happening when people make decisions that rather than partner with God or live in agreement with God, uh, we become something less than human. We do things that are dehumanizing to other people. You could describe it as beast-like. We become beast. If you, if you don't believe me, ask the person you live with and at, I'm certain at some point, they will give multiple examples of your beast-likeness, right? Or traits to become beastly, right? We're all prone towards that. And, it, and it, by the way, it, it's not uh, exclusive to age. You can be a young beast as well, maybe like a two-year-old beast as well, and, and you, or a 20-year-old beast, or an 80-year-old beast. It, it does not uh, discriminate with age. So there you go, the beastliness of humanity, if we look at last week. Today, we're going to take a look at the godlikeness of this figure we describe as the Son of Man. Next week, we'll take a look at the vindication, the healing, and the vocation that's offered to a renewed humanity. Um, honestly, don't, don't miss next week. Everything will kind of tie together next week. But what I want to focus on today is just this little phrase, and we'll look at really mainly two main verses that I want to focus on is verses 13 and 14, uh, about this figure that we describe as the Son of Man. Figure. So before we get to that, I want to just kind of give a little bit of a backstory in case you were not here last week, just so that it all kind of has a little bit of a context. So next slide, we'll talk a little bit about what happened in the beginning portions of Daniel chapter 7. So on your left is a, an old 1100s uh, image that was, you know, painted by nobody really knows exactly who um, of the story of Daniel chapter 7. If you look at it carefully, it's an image of some sort of being in the very center, and then there's these thrones all around it, and then you have these four beasts. It's directly right out of Daniel chapter 7. So whoever painted that was trying to be accurate with regard to the description there. Um, over on the right is the images that come from the Bible Project, which you've seen in the video before last week. And the point that I would make is this, is that Daniel has this, this vision, and in the vision he sees four beasts. So the, the main subject matter of his vision has these beast-like creatures coming up out of the ocean, out of the sea, and uh, they begin to wreak havoc. We, we looked at this last week. It's kind of like the, um, the, uh, the upside down of 
Genesis chapter 1, right? So if you're looking for a good modern analogy, right, Stranger Things, it's like the upside down of Genesis chapter 1. Out of Genesis chapter 1, you have this image of the sea um, and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And out of the hovering over the face of the deep, you have orderliness coming over chaos and life coming over any other type of uh, creating a habitable space for human beings to thrive and flourish. Um, Daniel chapter 7 is the exact opposite of that. Out of the sea comes chaos, chaos monsters, these beasts that destroy and terrorize all humanity. Um, which, which, by the way, this is kind of an interesting phrase in the Bible. The concept of the ocean or the sea um, is oftentimes the place where chaos comes out of, right? You see that in Genesis chapter 1. God takes the chaos and tames it and creates a habitable space. Daniel chapter 7, out of the sea comes chaos, which um, this, this passage in the book of Revelation deeply troubled me as a young Christian, maybe like 16 years old, I got saved and met Jesus, and I remember hearing a pastor talk about this, and the book of Revelation says, and I looked, and behold, there was no more sea. So I, I grew up in Huntington Beach, I grew up surfing, and so when I heard that, I'm like, no more sea? And that's, that's supposed to be heaven? Like, are you kidding me? Like, how could you have heaven without the ocean? Like, that's kind of a bummer. Um, and then it wasn't until years later that I began to realize, like, that the sea is actually a metaphor for chaos. That, that's, that's exactly what John is saying, is that in the future state, when God recreates all things, chaos will no longer be something that we have to deal with. God will bring order in the place of, of chaos. And all that the sea represented, which was chaos and disorderliness and destruction and ruin and, and, and mystery and pain and brokenness, uh, will be done away with. But that being said, we see these four beasts. Uh, the last beast, which uh, the Bible Project guys describe as the super beast, this uh, crazy mutated beast that just terrorizes and has these horns and the one main horn. It's, a, again, a reference. We looked at this a little bit more last week uh, of, of world-dominating super-militaristic empires that crush and destroy and terrorize human beings. Um, and yet there's one main goal that every one of them is aiming for, and it's, it's rulership, which is a, a strange irony in the entire Bible storyline. Why? Because Genesis 1 starts with Adam and Eve being given, what? Rulership, right? Rulership. They have the very thing that these super beasts are after. And yet, Adam and Eve are also presented with the choice of, will you obey God? Walk in God's ways and listen to his word and respond to his word and be loyal to him? Or will you take matters into your own hands? and seek to live according to your best understanding, your best interpretation of what is the right way. And to follow God's ways, the Bible says, is a path to wisdom. To follow what's in our own heart is ultimately a path to chaos. And, and if you don't believe me, just look, look at your own life. Because we've all been there, all, all of us, all of us. Maybe some of us are there right now. You look at your life, and all you see on the landscape of your horizon is, is chaos. And you ask the question, how in the world did that get there? Uh, for, in some cases, it's chaos that was thrown into your life from another person, meaning you didn't deserve it, you're an innocent victim in this particular situation, you are suffering at the hands of someone else's chaos. But many times, the, the chaos is, is, comes as the choices that we make in life begin to lead us down to a path of, of deep brokenness, of, of sin, of ruin. And yet, what we see here is this beast-like nature coming, uh, coming onto the scene. So with that being said, um, I want to just, next slide. Tim Mackey said this in one of the videos that we looked at last week. Um, he says, humanity has turned out to be beastly, right? 
So all we can hope is that a human will come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So again, Genesis chapter 7 has kind of been believed or thought by many scholars and theologians to basically be an encapsulation of the entire Bible storyline. In other words, human beings, given the choice, given the opportunity to partner with God, to rule and reign, that rather than partnering with God, began to make choices in their own mindset, according to their own ways, which led to beast-like decisions and activities and actions towards other people. In other words, it's brought chaos. It's unleashed chaos on planet Earth. And so the question that constantly keeps being asked over and over and over again throughout the entire Bible storyline is, is, is there a human being that gets it right? Does anybody who's human, does anybody get it right? And what you see in the Bible, there's occasions where some human beings seem to get it right. They are off to a good start, and it seems like everything is going hunky-dory until they make choices that are self-focused, that unleash that same chaos in their own lives, in the lives of other people. Next slide. Uh, what I want to think about as we begin to unpack this is to try to make some sense of this. Now, I want to read just basically the passage uh, because what Daniel sees is in the midst of these beasts, all of a sudden in verse 9 to 10, again, some of this is a little bit of recap, but I just want to go over it again just in case you missed it. Uh, he sees this throne rise up in the middle of these chaos creatures. And this throne is sort of the semblance of orderliness, right? So I want you to get this picture in your mind. Here's chaos, destruction, ruin, terrorization, brokenness, pain, what might be described as like some of our lives. On the other hand, it's contrasted with the throne, God, orderliness, peace, hope, healing, goodness. All of this is happening simultaneously. Uh, so I just want to read through this. We'll make some observations, and we'll kind of move on, and we'll wrap this up with some concluding thoughts. So uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, I'll just read through each of these. We'll make some comments and keep going. Uh, it says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was, white, was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning with fire. So at this point right now, you're kind of like thoroughly confused. I get it. What in the world is going on here? Let's try to unpack it bit by bit. So he says, and I looked, there are thrones. Thrones were placed. So some degree, thrones obviously indicate rulership or ruling, leadership. And these thrones are placed in this heavenly courtroom, this heavenly council. And so you're beginning to probably supposed to be asking the questions, who occupies these thrones? Who are these thrones belong to? Carry on in the story. It says, in one in the middle of this, uh, like the Ancient of Days appears. So the phrase, uh, the Hebrew phrase Ancient of Days just simply means really an aged person, a, 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 a person really, really old, right? Old person. Uh, it says that he took his seat. So the image here is that whoever this ancient one is, obviously we, we believe this is Yahweh, God, uh, the one eternal true God, he ends up taking his seat, which is, again, this picture of a throne, a kingly throne, meaning rulership and ownership over all things. Uh, we're told about his clothing. His clothing was white as snow. Any thoughts on what would snow represent? Any, any guesses? Take, takers? What, what would snow represent or whiteness? Purity, right, right, good. You guys are smart. Right, purity, exactly. So uh, this Ancient of Days uh, is on a throne, and he's uh, marked by incredible purity. 
so much so that it's described as white as snow. Next, we see that the hair of his head was like pure wool. All right, so uh, again, white-haired human being, or white-haired person. What would uh, it indicate uh, in an ancient culture to have your hair white? What does that mean? Come on. It means you're old. But, but then with, with age comes what? Right, right, comes wisdom. So is, is it kind of funny in today's culture, like we try to like dye the, the gray away, all right? We, we try to get rid of that because we, I mean, again, I, I've said this before, we as a culture, we, I think it's safe to say we worship youthfulness. We worship youthfulness. So in other words, to, to get old is like a curse. I don't want to get old. I want to have six-pack abs at age 85. Um, but in, in the biblical framework, um, to be old, meaning to have white hair, also means you've got a heck of a lot of life experience. And if you learned a thing or two along the way, uh, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are wise, because I, I know a lot of older people that are, are, they have a lot of knowledge, but not a lot of wisdom. And I know a lot of younger people that might not know a whole lot of stuff, but they have some degree of wisdom. But so the point of the matter is wisdom is not necessarily guaranteed just because you're, you're an old person. But uh, wisdom likely, if you walk in a path of, of rightness, righteousness with God, uh, you'll learn a few things, and hopefully that will translate over to wisdom. So whoever this is has an incredible amount of wisdom. And then we're told that his throne was fiery flames and the wheels were burning fire. So this is no doubt um, deeply linked to an image that a guy named Ezekiel, another prophet slash poet, um, had uh, about God. But what's fascinating about this image is that the throne that God is on is a, is a mobile, mobile throne. It's God, some describe it as the Godmobile, right? He's on the Godmobile. So, so think about this. Where, where was God's physical, tangible presence housed in the ancient world? Anybody? Temple, right? Prior to the temple, where? Tabernacle, right, right. So in ancient Israel, there was space, place, that would be the housing spot for the hot spot, if you would, where heaven and earth would kind of overlap. That place was called the temple. And in that temple was this actual zone that was called the holiest of holies. It was the place where God himself dwelled. It was the hot spot of God's presence. Um, right now, as Daniel is receiving this vision, uh, where's the temple and how are things going at the temple? Well, actually not good because uh, the very beginning of chapter one of the book of Daniel, we're told that the temple is actually destroyed, right? They encountered their 9-11. Their, their temple was their two twin towers. Utterly decimated, utterly destroyed. So the big question is, is where's God now? Right, where's God? It's a natural question. Where's God? Well, if God's house, God's home, God's temple is now gone, where is God? Apparently, God's on his, his Godmobile. And, and where is this Godmobile? Well, Babylon. That, that, should, that should send a shockwave of scandal to you if you're ancient Jewish, Israelite, nationalistic, like, God's on our team. He belongs exclusive to, exclusively to us, on our zone, in our place, in our land. Well, apparently, God didn't get that memo. Because apparently, God takes his presence even into places where God's presence shouldn't go. And that should automatically cause your brain to go forward to the book of uh, the New Testament, where you see Jesus hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and people that are not supposed to be accepted or recognized or cared for, the people that are in the margins. Uh, it's where God ends up hanging out. So number uh, 10, uh, verse 10, we see that there's a stream of fire that issued and came out from before him, and a thousand 
10,000 served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So a couple other quick things that we notice about this. One, there's this massive presence of a being, super beings, around the throne of God. 10,000 times 10,000 is probably just a metaphorical number, number for a massive amount of super beings around the throne of God. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God before the throne. Uh, we're told of a stream of fire. So this phrase, stream of fire, should probably cause our brains to go back to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 1, where we're told in the Garden of Eden was a stream, a river of life. But this is not a river of water. This is a river of fire, which indicates probably judgment. Because the verse goes on to say, and the books were open, the court was set in motion, and God was about to bring down his judgment, just judgment upon wickedness and evil. Um, I don't know how you think about that, um, but there's evil in this world. And God will one day rid this world of evil. He will literally kick the hell out of this planet. He will get rid of it. That's his aim. And this is what God invites us to be a part of the work that he's up to in this world. Is This is what God's up to in this heavenly court scene. He's about to kick the evil, the ruin, the brokenness, the chaos uh, away from this arena. So next slide. I want to keep going on in our reading through this. In verse 13, this is where it gets really um, complex and, and amazing. So we're going to skip a couple passages. We're told that in the in-between that this little kind of flashes back, if you would, to the scene of this fourth beast who has this horn. The little horn is making boastful claims against God, this arrogance, right? Because that's what human beings do. We're like, we're God, and we're powerful, and we're mightier than what anybody else can ever think of. And then this little, this little horn is going to be overcome by, by Yahweh God, who now, in this vision, Daniel says this. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. So there's a handful of things going on here right now. I just want you to pause, take a deep breath, and just consider this, because this is absolutely mind-blowing. All right, so here we go. So first of all, we're told that there are these clouds of heaven. Clouds kind of represent always uh, God's, God's presence. So we're told in the uh, holy temple that when the sacrifices were presented, you have this image of these clouds. They represented God, the thickness, the presence of God. Uh, in the wilderness, when the children of Israel made their way through the wilderness, uh, we're told that God's presence came to them as like a cloud. So this is no doubt in, in, in indicative of the very presence of God. But here's what's fascinating about this, is that with the clouds of heaven, the, the presence of God, comes one like the Son of Man. This phrase uh, is a little bit like odd. Like, What does it mean to be the Son of Man? It, um, don't read too much into this than, than what it is. It literally just simply means the human one. There's a human a human one. And the question is, what's the human one doing? What's this human doing? Well, apparently, he's riding a cloud into the presence of Yahweh, and he's presented before him. So a couple of things that are going on. Number one, uh, this phrase, he's a cloud rider. I'll come back to that in two seconds. But the second thing that I notice about him is that he's not scorched in the presence of Yahweh. Do you see what happens? He's accepted by God. So this is a really unique character. So you should be asking this question, who in the world is this Son of Man figure, and why is he riding in the cloud, and why is he accepted by Yahweh? And this is a puzzling question, but it's one that we get to think about and wrestle with this morning, and hopefully have our minds absolutely blown away by it. So what I want to suggest real quick um, in thinking about this is uh, the phrase, 
Cloud Writer. So again, I'll just kind of go a little bit of a rabbit trail for you. You're welcome. But the phrase Cloud Writer, um, throughout the Old Testament, the word Cloud Writer, the phrase Cloud Writer, is used exclusively, only, to describe Yahweh God. Uh, what's fascinating about this phrase, if you're familiar with like ancient archaeology, you know that the phrase cloud rider was also a phrase that was used to describe an ancient pagan deity about uh, a god by the name of Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal. He was one of the ancient deities of the ancient world, and he kind of you know, was the, 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 the god of the sky. So uh, here you are living in an ancient culture and civilization, uh, you depended upon, you know, your Brussels sprouts in order to survive, or whatever it is, your wheat, whatever it is to grow, make your bread, and gluten-free bread, and all that, so all that amazing stuff. Um, but let's say, for example, you have drought for the past three months, and you're in desperate condition right now, because you can't just go to Trader Joe's and go buy a loaf of gluten-free bread. So now you are desperate. What are you going to do? Well, you know that all the other pagan nations, they start doing these weird chants and dances and sexual exploits in order to arouse the gods, the, the ancient p pagan deities, in order to get them to move on their behalf. So in other words, it's about manipulation. What can we do to get the gods to do something for us? So what they would do, they would do all these crazy enchantments and incantations and offering sacrifices and so on and so forth. And one of the names that was actually used to describe Baal was the cloud writer. So the, the ancient biblical writers, these guys knew this, and they hijacked that phrase and said, uh-uh, it's not Baal. It's Yahweh. Yahweh is a cloud rider. He's the one that rides in the cloud. So here's a couple ways in which it gets used. So for example, I'll just read one of these, and you can write them down, jot them down for a little bit later. Deuteronomy chapter 33, this is the first time this appears. It says, there is none like Yahweh God who rides through the skies. For what purpose does Yahweh God ride through the skies? For your help. Apparently, Yahweh God sees the desperate condition of humanity, the brokenness, the chaos they find themselves steeped in. And God comes to their rescue. And you see this image over and over again. Again, like I said, here's a, here's a big takeaway I want you to think about. Number one is this concept, cloud rider, is used exclusively of Yahweh God. Until you get to Daniel chapter 7. Someone else is brought into this phrase that was once exclusively used for Yahweh God. And it's used to describe this figure named the Son of Man. He's also apparently a cloud rider. So what does that all have to do? As we keep on going, I'm going to just go on to the very next slide, and we'll hopefully make some final conclusions, and then I'm going to close on having you guys watch this little video from the Bible Project people. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 says this, And to him, so to this cloud rider, named the Son of Man, the human one, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this raises a really, really powerful question, which we'll actually explore a little bit more next week. What does it mean to have favor, to be accepted by God? Because apparently this human one, this son of man figure, comes into God's presence and is fully accepted. What does that mean? Well, apparently, for this one, it means being given dominion and glory and honor or if you want, Genesis 1 rebooted. Wh whoever this one is, he does something that all human beings have failed to do up until this point. Which then raises a question, next slide, as we kind of uh, come to the end of this. So who is this mysterious cloud-riding human who is not only accepted by Yahweh, but also given dominion 
glory and a kingdom, which then leads me to this other question. Next slide. Is knowing that humanity, here, here, yeah, go back, sorry. This one, this one, there you go. So the question is, is there a son of man or human being anywhere who is worthy? Or to put it in another phrase, are there any human beings anywhere out there who get it right? All right, so if you read the Bible story from beginning to end, one of the things you'll discover is that there's this long history, right? If you've ever picked up your Bible, you're like, oh my gosh, this is a, this is a really, really big, and I have like an extra big one here, just so you can see. An extra big, I mean, it's a really, really big book. And if you look at like the Old Testament or the First Testament compared to the New Testament or the, 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 the fuller New Testament idea, it's, it's really thick. And if you read through it, you realize there's this constant ongoing theme over and over and over again. A lot of messed up, very, very broken, dysfunctional people and dysfunctional families constantly making choices that are very beast-like and constantly treating each other in ways that are beastly. In other words, we do things towards one another that dehumanize them. Or we've had things done to us that have dehumanized and wounded and caused deep trauma to our own souls. And the big question is, is there any human being that gets this whole thing right? And so you start reading through the Bible and you realize that maybe there's occasions where somebody will rise on the scene and get it right. So you are reading through the Bible and you realize Adam and Eve, they have a child. And the child, they have two children, Cain and Abel. And you're thinking maybe at this point, maybe, maybe Cain's going to get it right. Well, Cain doesn't get it right. We're actually told about Cain that he is confronted by deep jealousy between him and his brother. God comes to him and says, hey, Cain, listen, sin is crouching at your door. In other words, the image is that of a beast, this beast-like figure about ready to pounce on you. But you have the, you have the ability to make a choice to walk in wisdom to walk in a way that's beyond your own understanding and enter into a place where you can say no to the beast-like urges and overcome it. But that's not what happens. Cain falls for the beast-like urge. Jealousy rages him. Violence overtakes him, and he slaughters his brother. Uh, you get to the book of the story of Noah, and you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's really legit. Like, he seems like an amazing guy. He's, he's got his life seemingly in order, right? He's the guy that, you know, calls all these animals together, builds this big, massive ark, and everything seems to be going okay until Noah gets off the ark. He plants a vineyard, and something really dubious happens in a tent with him and his son. Again, it's, I'm not even going to go into it. You can read the story on your own. But something really, really foul and bad happens. All sorts of scholarship trying to figure out what in the world happened. But whatever the case is, we know that whatever happened, he got drunk, and something really bad happened. <laughs> we don't know exactly what it is, but apparently... He blew it, too. He's not the guy. Uh, what about Abraham? You get to Abraham, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this guy seems like a really legit dude. He's trusting God. He's following God all the way from the Chaldees over this other area of the world, following God. He seems to have faith and confidence and trust in God, and yet even Abraham's all messed up. Moses, again, potential rival. He looks really good. He's got issues. Samson, we all know about him. Not a good dude. Deborah, maybe, but she... She goes around killing people, slaughtering people, right? So she's, she's got this, you know, violent streak as well. Uh, Samuel, David, on down the line, you see all of these human beings who've got incredible potential, uh, deeply flawed. And ultimately, when tested, they failed and often acted in beastly fashion, <laughs> just like you and I. So the big question that keeps 
showing back up is, is there a human, a human one, a son of man that gets it right in the face of trial or temptation to go against God, resist the temptation of the beast, and follows the way of Yahweh, all the way to the point where it costs him everything. All right, so let's jump into the story of Jesus. And it's not until we come into this New, St- New Testament story of him that we begin to see to what degree that the entire Bible storyline is looking forward to this, this one that, again, we describe, that Jesus describes himself consistently as the Son of Man. This is not accidental, by the way. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. His entire vocation and idea and mission and game plan was literally derived from Daniel chapter 7. And I'll prove it in two seconds. Uh, It's turned into the story of the book of Mark, the gospel, one of the gospel accounts. We see that Jesus, this is the story when Jesus was tested or tempted. So again, the question is, Jesus is about to be tempted and tested by the devil. How is he going to fare? Is he going to give in to the temptations and the beast? Beastly urges, just like every other human being, or will he fight and resist and be victorious? Well, we're told that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. We know the story that he resists. And this little phrase, crazy wild phrase that Luke or that Mark adds. And he was with the wild beasts, just chilling, hanging. This is supposed to be an image of Genesis 1. (laughs) Adam in the garden with the wild animals, not being overcome, but ruling, leading over them, and being ministered to by these angelic beings. Jesus overcomes the beastly urges to follow his own desires, his own ways, his own lusts, his own intentions, and instead follows the way of Yahweh all the way to the point that we see at the end of the story. Matthew or Mark chapter 2. Uh, verse 10, again, one of the areas in which Jesus actually uses the phrase Son of Man. This is how he puts it. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. Just that phrase, I want you to think about that. Son of Man has authority. Uh, think about that. Like, this is literally Genesis 1. That's what Genesis 1 is. God creates human beings, breathes life into them, and says, exercise rule and reign over all creation. Is that not human beings being given authority? It's exactly what's happening. So, the way that the New Testament writers are framing this, they want you to get the storyline that Jesus is not just some random dude who showed up who's going to preach some great, heartwarming, healing, heart, you know, satisfying, hippie-type truth. This is indeed a reboot of Adam. He's going to get it right. He says, just so that you would know, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So this is, this is different than what you and I can do. Like, we, we don't have the authority to forgive sins. And the religious leaders, they even know this. They're like, wait, who has the authority to forgive sins? Okay. Uh, not even the priests. Not even the priests have authority to forgive sins. All they have is the authority to point people to Yahweh who forgives sins. But apparently Jesus, whoever he is, he's more than just the son of man. Something else is happening here. This is what we would come to describe. Big theological word Sunday for you. You're welcome. Uh, the incarnation, meaning God comes into human form, human flesh, it becomes for us what we can never be for ourselves. Next slide. This is where it gets really fascinating, and then I'll conclude. Uh, this is when Jesus, ultimately, we're familiar with the story. This kind of jumps to the very end of the book of Mark. We know that Jesus spends from you know, chapter 2 all the way till this particular point 
doing nothing but good. You can literally summarize Jesus' life by saying, so what did Jesus do for the next you know, several years? Oh, just good. Just good, right? How else would you describe what Jesus does, right? He heals people. He rehumanizes people that are off in the margins. He makes food. I mean, you, think about people that you know that make really good food. Are they not good people? They're great people, right? Jesus makes lots of food for lots of people over and over and over and over again. Keeps repeating these types of cycles of goodness for other people. Ultimately finds himself landing right smack in the middle of a court scene. Again, it should take us back to Daniel chapter 7, which is a court scene. In this case, it's an inverted court scene. Because rather than God standing as a judge over, residing over the beast, this is Jesus in the court scene surrounded by beastly figures that are about to devour him. So listen, listen to the story. Jesus was brought before the high priest, and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they came together in verse 55. The chief priests and the whole council, they were seeking testimony to put Jesus to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. The high priest stood up in the middle and he said to Jesus, have you no answer to make? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, listen so carefully, this is literally the, the most important part of this whole thing. Jesus then said to him, I am, exactly what he said, the Christ, but more than that. And then Jesus adds this blue hyperlink to Daniel chapter 7. It says why it's blue and underlined. It's a hyperlink. Like if you were a Jewish theologian, that's who these guys were. These were Bible experts. So these guys knew exactly what was going on in this entire situation. So when Jesus throws this out, because some of us were like, how come Jesus doesn't come right out and say, I'm God? He did in Jewish language. He, he did. It's exactly what he did. But he used Jewish metaphor and idiom in scripture to say exactly that. And here's what he says. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And just in case you miss this, uh, Mark tells us, in verse 63, And the high priest tore his garments and said, You have heard his blasphemy. And they all condemned him as deserving to death. So what's going on here? What Jesus is alluding to, very clearly, emphatically, and unambiguously, is that I am the Son of Man figure who has ascended in the clouds to the right hand of God. I am the one who will be worshipped and adored and honored. I am the one who's gotten it right. Which, if Jesus, here's kind of two parts of this. If on the one hand, Jesus is asserting, I am the Son of Man figure, so here's, here's the flip side of that coin. <laughs> who in the story, in the illusion, are, are the evil, tormenting beasts. Caiaphas, the religious leaders. Okay, so Jesus is radically subversive. I know some of us like to think of Jesus like this hippie, like he's so kind. And Jesus was radically subversive. Jesus is standing in front of the powerhouses, power brokers of his day. And he's like, you guys have been overcome by beast-like urges. And that's all that you are, are beasts. I, on the other hand, am the Son of Man who have come to take upon myself the brokenness and destruction that you throw my way. This is what's absolutely 
mind-blowing about the life of Jesus. And I want to finish with this final thought because some of us right now, we're just kind of like, okay, great. What, what does all of this matter anyhow? And this is where I want to finish with this final thought. So why does any of this matter? Well, I think, for one, all of this matters because the Bible is pretty clear upon this fact, that your future, fate, is either linked to flawed humanity, flawed human beings, which is Adam and or this mutated beastliness of humanity, right? Um, again, if you, if you don't believe me, uh, the older you get, you start looking at characteristic traits of your life. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm becoming my dad. I'm becoming my mom, that temper that dad had, that temper that mom. I'm becoming just like, what is that? That's beastliness rebooting itself in, in you. So, so our fate, our future, is either tied to humanity or it's tied to Jesus, who is the new Adam, the true son of man. Uh, that we will either share in the destiny of Adam, which ultimately what Paul would say is the wages of sin is death, because that's where it, it always leads to, is death. Or tied to Jesus, which is death followed by new life. The final thing I would just end with this thought is that the, the God of the Bible is the God of new life. I just want you to wrap your head around this. The God of the Bible is the God of new life. Should we as human beings demand remaining in the same systems of death and beastliness and brokenness, there may come a point where God will say, go for it. But the way of beastliness is death. The God of the Bible, on the other hand, is the God of new life. To say, God, I want to follow your ways. I want to be what you want me to be. I want to walk in your path. I want to make these choices and decisions that are not in line with my desires, no matter how strong or powerful or throbbing they are in me. I want my desires to ultimately be in line with your heart, your word. It may feel like death, but ultimately in the end will lead to new life. Because the God of the Bible is the God of new life. To walk in agreement with the God of the Bible is to walk in new life. To walk in disagreement with the God of the Bible is to maintain the status quo of death and brokenness and beastliness and ruin and to share in that fate. This is what's absolutely amazing about the scripture and that the invitation of God is to turn our hearts to him, to trust him. So what I want to do right now is I want to finish. I'm going to actually have the worship team come on up. They're going to get themselves ready. And then as I finish, I'm going to have Pastor James come on up, which, by the way, uh, James has been on a two-and-a-half-month sabbatical. We're so glad to have James back. Where is James? Where is he at? There he is. James will come on up, and he will close us off in some prayer and then lead us into this some time of reflection and worship and communion. So I want to show this little video. So these guys will cue themselves, and as soon as the video is done, James will lead us in some prayer and worship, and then these guys will play some songs together. So here's the video of the Bible Project. Some of this might be uh, review, purposeful. It's for us to get it, to learn it, and hopefully have your mind blown, and ultimately your life changed. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ. That is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? 
Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain. He was jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives, and he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. 
Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast, and as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. Uh, thank you, Pastor Brian. That uh, that particular chapter of Scripture is truly mind-boggling. But it, I wanted to read that verse 13 and 14 with Jesus in the center of it, as it can be safely interpreted um, through this message this morning. And so it encapsulates my uh, encouragement to all of us in terms of how do we respond to such a great message that Jesus is the Son of Man. So listen to this scripture as in just place Jesus in the center of it and think about how that applies if this is indeed who we're worshiping. How does that apply to each one of us? As my vision continued that night, I saw Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. Jesus was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. Jesus' kingdom will never be destroyed. Thinking about that Jesus that we worship, that we just heard about, that goes thousands of years back into the scriptures saying he's going to come, the Son of Man would come, I was thinking, what's appropriate response to a king, any king? doesn't matter how low the king is or what, how small his kingdom is. I thought, it's very appropriate to bow before any king. I mean, we, we have that image of why, did, why does someone approach the throne of a ruler and bow? It's the symbolism there is what? You are higher. I'm setting myself purposefully lower before you, king. You're the one who reigns, not me. I am lower than you. I'm bowing myself. And really, it's a picture of submission. And in my notes in my Bible, I thought I wrote this phrase, submission equals worship. Like, I bow myself low and I esteem you high because I'm, my goal is to, that I might be less and, and esteem you for who you truly are. You're the one who rules, reigns. And it says Jesus is the one who, whose uh, kingdom, his rule is eternal. And it will never be taken away from him. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And so as we come to worship Jesus there's an inherent reality that I have to bow. I have to make myself low and raise him up in my heart outward. 
even to the very body that I've been given. My expression of worship to him right now as we close, as we have communion together, and as we worship with songs, we really have that opportunity to once again proclaim who our true king is, who, we re who reigns eternally. And that is we bow, and sometimes it means literally getting before our face, or on our face, and bow before not just someone who we hope exists, but the one who is at the right hand of the throne of God right now. The one who is the son of man, who claimed himself to be that son of man, as, as was described earlier. So that's my charge to all of us as we would respond to this great message, that God's eternal kingdom in Jesus, who never ends, that we would bow low before him, that we would submit our lives. And maybe that's, you're coming and you don't, you've never submitted yourself. If you look in your own heart, you've never submitted yourself to Jesus as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. That's your calling, to bow low your heart before him. If you are a believer and you, you're, you've already done that and said, Jesus, you own my life, there's individual parts that may still be trying to, to rival that, you know, that rulership of Jesus. There, there's certain areas that the Holy Spirit says, you need to submit this to me and worship so that I can take you to new servant-like heights. So that's my encouragement to us. And as we close, we're going to have communion. We have it up here where you take the, the wafer and you dip it and you partake. And what that is is it's an invitation that's open to anyone who would what? Who would submit themselves to the true king, Jesus himself, who gave his body and his blood as illustrated in the symbols here of the broken bread and the spilt cup of his own blood that was shed for the remission of sins for anyone who would come and say, you are the king. I submit my life to you. So it's open to anyone and everyone. Whether you've committed your life, right, you know, to this moment, you haven't done that yet. You can do that, and then the communion table is open to you. If you haven't done it, don't come. And that's between you and God. Do it when you're ready, but do it. And for all of us that are already in Christ, come with, Lord, how do you want me to submit, even this day, even this week ahead? So let, as we worship, I invite you to come to grab the bread and the cup. Uh, to dip into the cup and remember, Lord, I'm bowing down so you might be lifted high. I'm submitting to you so that you might be worshiped and adored in my heart and in the heart of this place. So, Lord, we just thank you that right now you are the king who reigns. You are the eternal one. You are the one who is the son of man written about in Daniel the prophet. Lord, so many years ago, Lord, it was fulfilled in you. And you told us very clearly, you told those around you that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, we thank you that you are our example of submission, that you serve the Father in submission, that you said, not my will be done, but your will be done. Lord, we want to do that, and we want to lay our hearts so that they might be clearly examined before you, the eyes that see right through our heart and our soul. Lord, we worship you now as we partake together. As we worship with these songs, help us to bow well, our King of kings and our Lord of lords.